0: Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. We're going to return to our study of this book as we resume in chapter 8. We could say really the first seven chapters that we've looked at so far were a period of of testing. And chapters 8 through 12 are a period of transition. Uh, We transition in 8 through 12 from the main focus of the church being in Jerusalem, the first seven chapters, to then moving to Antioch. Uh, there's a transition of the gospel message going to the Jews in the first part of the book, to then being shifted to Samaritans and Gentiles. We move from Peter being the recognized leader uh, to then, who was Saul, who became Paul, being the recognized leader later in the book. Uh, we saw persecution start with a, a basic harassment to then ending in murder in chapter 7. And as bad as things got for Christians in the first century, what would you guess would be the worst year of Christian persecution from church's inception to now? Any guesses? Any guesses? it would be 2016, the worst year for Christian persecution. This is according to the World Watch List published by an organization called Open Doors. Approximately 215 million Christians experience high, very high, or extreme persecution. Many people don't realize this. I mean, we hear these kind of statistics and we say, whoa, well, the church then is in trouble, right? We've got so many people that are against the church and and governments that are working against Christians. The church is in trouble. Quite the opposite. God uses persecution to purify and expand his church. Acts 8, 1 through 8 illustrates this truth when we read of the the start of what we call the dispersion of the church. Persecution dispersed them from Jerusalem, but God had a very meaningful purpose in mind. So let's all stand as we look at our passage in Acts chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen's execution. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And Paul, or Saul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So we know that Saul was at the execution of Stephen. The fact that he gave, this passage says, approval probably means that he did not actively participate in throwing stones at Stephen, but when we look at Acts 7.58, that witnesses laid their clothes down at Stephen so they could have a better throw, it implies that he probably played some kind of leadership role in the execution. And Saul indeed was a Jewish leader with great influence. He was a ringleader for what Luke calls here the great persecution of the church in Jerusalem. Now that term persecution simply means to cause, to suffer, and with Jewish leaders being complicit with uh, Saul, we can mark this down as this is Israel confirming its tragic choice to reject Christ as the Messiah. So as a result of this, exec- uh, of this execution of Stephen and the persecution that followed, there was a mass exodus from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And though it doesn't say this directly, most commentators agree that when in verse 1 Luke writes that all were scattered, that he's referring here to the Hellenistic or Greek speaking or foreign Jews who had come to Christ. Now that brings a a racial component in this mix because they were easily recognized as not being a part of the Jerusalem Jewish group. In fact, they had their own, the Hellenists did separate synagogues, and it's almost like here in the States where you have certain races who gather together with their own churches. It was the same in Jerusalem, and in addition, these Hellenistic Christians were associated with Stephen because he was of the same stripe and he was executed, so we can see why they were wanting to flee. The text says that the believers were scattered except the apostles. Now, adding up the numbers that Luke provides in the book of Acts and in adding those up when we count women and children, the estimations are probably about 25,000 believers in Jerusalem at this time. So there had to be a considerable number of people who exited the city and going to Judea and Samaria. You've probably heard it said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And whether it is Stephen here in Acts 7 and 8, or the five missionaries killed in Ecuador in in 1956, God uses persecution to expand his kingdom. The efforts by the Sanhedrin and Saul to stop the preaching of the church, to, to annihilate the Christians to wipe them out. This did nothing but result in expansion, in wider impact from the church. We saw that even with the five missionaries that were killed in Ecuador in 1956. You would think with those um, men who were fathers and husbands that their families would scatter. In, In fact, what they did is redoubled their efforts to reach that group that had killed them, the very people who murdered their husbands and fathers, they stayed to minister to and saw many of them come to Christ. All are scattered, and then the seed is sown. And in doing so, they are fulfilling the commandment of Jesus in Acts eight to go and be witnesses throughout all the world. So God used the persecution of his people as evidence that his sovereign hand was upon them. in fact it's in Psalm 1102 that says that he rules also in the midst of his enemy. So here's an event that appears to, to be the destruction, the annihilation of the church. and instead it's used as a means to invigorate and extend the church, because of the sovereign hand of God. And we see this in places like like China, where there's intense persecution and the underground church is growing by the thousands. It's really amazing. The psalmist says this, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers, God is the orchestrator of history. We see in Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And in Psalm five six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. It's good to remember, is it not? That the sovereign hand of God was upon the church and is upon our lives during trials. Going through a difficulty, facing a trial, God continues to be sovereign. God continues to work his purposes in and through those difficulties. God is still in control, just like he was here in Acts 8. Now, the apostles apparently were not the center of the bullseye here because there was still a favorable opinion because they were native Jews, even though they were church leaders. And in addition, the apostles wanted to stay to continue to do the job that had to be done in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. I love these details that Luke has, who's, by the way, a doctor and I think a very good historian. And, And he talks about devout men and Most people think that this is probably devout Jews, not necessarily converted, but who were sympathetic. They they didn't like to see this injustice done to Stephen. And, And perhaps they were warming up to the message of the gospel. But they buried Stephen openly, grieving. And that was an act of courage because Jewish law forbade funeral observances for a condemned criminal. And even though Stephen died as a result of a mob violence, it still took great courage for them to grieve in the open with somebody who was a Hellenistic Jewish Christian. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, there are certain details we know about this individual named Saul, we know that he was born in Tarsus and Cilicia. He was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a son of a Pharisee, a Roman citizen. He was educated in Jerusalem by Gamaliel. He became a devoted Pharisee, measuring his, his life by the law. He was blameless. He was one of the young, up-and-coming, promising Pharisees in Jerusalem, well on his way to being one of the greatest leaders in Judaism. And to him, Defending Judaism meant to silencing the Christians. And in Saul's case, it says that he ravaged the church. It's a term that's actually used of a wild beast that tears at the flesh of another animal. Or it's used of wild boars who go and destroy a vineyard. In other words, he utilized a brutal, sadistic kind of cruelty showing no mercy. Luke says he even turned against women, throwing them in prison. And because believers in the first century met in house churches, it says that they were meeting, Paul uh, was going from house to house. They were easy targets, the Christians were, as they met in these homes. In fact, he was so good at his job people were so fearful of him that after his conversion we read later in acts 9:31 after his conversion it says that the church en- enjoyed peace in other words the persecution you could see a distinct difference in the level of persecution when paul or when saul became a christian and became paul he was obviously the ringleader to this persecution Isn't it amazing that you can can kill people in the name of God thinking you're doing God's work, murdering? It's kind of like terrorists who run around yelling the name of Allah, doing evil, convincing themselves that they are serving God. We get an interesting perspective of Paul who looks back on his life before Christ He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, he called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent who acted ignorantly in unbelief. It goes to the point that people can be raging in their opposition against God. Blind. Ignorant. Irrational in their opposition. They hate Christ. They hate the church. In 1927, the famous poet and essayist T.S. Eliot became a Christian and was publicly baptized. Prior to his conversion, Eliot belonged to London's Bloomsbury Group. It was a small informal association of, of artists and intellectuals who lived and worked in this district of the central part of London. When news of Elliot's conversion hit, the Bloomsbury group responded with shock and disgust. The writer Virginia Woolf, de facto leader of the group, penned these words to a friend. I have had a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott, who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immorality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene. In a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. End quote. You can just hear the vitriol drip from the words. I've met many, many people just like this. And I'd be quick to add, they are not our enemy. They are victims of the enemy. And Paul recognized that. I was blind. I was, I was ignorant. I was irrational. And I thought I was pleasing God. Hmm. There's always going to be opposition, but here's the rest of the story. Verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. There is great hope here in the influence of regular people using their gifts and being witnesses of their experience with Christ. Now, These are not all evangelists, but they essentially acted like it. They they functioned like it. They were without really official obligation or express authority. Instead, they moved with with hearts filled with faith and a sense of truth and, and veracity in the claims of Christ. They were convinced of his death, burial, and resurrection. They were influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. They were compelled by the love of Christ that was shed abroad in their heart and how Christ had had died on a cross for their sins and had redeemed them and and was their blessed hope. This propagation of the gospel was not the work of the apostles, but of regular folks like me and you. We must not forget this. We must not place these men like Philip that we'll read about and, and these people who fled as some kind of superhuman, you know, Christians. They were regular people who were telling their story of how Christ had impacted their life. And in their conversations, they made a beeline for Christ. May God compel us to do the same. Because, my friends, we have... A job as witnesses. You are the witnesses, the ambassadors of Christ. I have always felt, since I've been a pastor, that we would not be structured in such a way where we bring all of our non-Christian friends to church, then we put on a great display of drama or whatever else up on this stage, and we impress people with a you know smoke and mirrors and wow, man, I want that. That's entertaining. I, I want a part of that. We never want that to get in the way of the simple proclamation of the gospel. You know what? You know what the best advertisement is? You know what the best communicator of the gospel is for your friends? You are. Not me. You. You are the witnesses. You don't need to be a great speaker. You don't need a PhD in Bible. You just need to tell your story of how Christ touched your life and you share the gospel. May God compel us, not in a jerky way, not a in your face throwing a track at people. We love them well. It's not a notch on our belt. We love all people. And in that loving, we share the gospel. Now, I mean, can can you see this when they were all scattered about? Can you just envision this steady stream of believers in pain, don't forget, in pain with nothing but their clothes on the back and they're they're like, you know, headed out the back door trying to get away from this persecution. They're looking both ways as they escape from their homes. The only possessions they have is what they could carry in their arms. They pour out of the city gates of Jerusalem and where do they go? They are disconnected from all the comforts of home. They didn't hole up in caves in the hill. They didn't go out in seclusion in the desert. They scattered to nearby territories and they spoke of the goodness of God and the gospel. And this is what God has called us all to do as we go about our work, as we go to school, as we love our neighbors. We are simply witnesses. Now, some of us grew up in a culture where it was forced, where it was basically boldness is equated with rude, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about prayerfully loving others. Yes, being bold, but in a way that shows respect for our neighbors. Listen, these people were not giving moralistic preaching. Uh, They were not giving positive self-help pep talks. They were not giving promises of riches or showmanship. They were giving the only message that brings transformation, and that is the gospel. See, when you're convinced of the truthfulness, the veracity of the gospel, your heart overflows, you can't help but share that. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and he proclaimed to them the Christ. Philip, by the way, is not the apostle Philip. He's the deacon guy in Acts 6.5. A regular guy. He's the one who serves the church in the physical needs. Many of you here serve the church and, you know, doing, you, might, you might, might change diapers in the nursery. You might, uh, uh, you know, you might help with the benevolence. You might uh, do a class or whatever it is you do. Just a regular person. That's the way he started. He ends up later in Acts one eight being called an evangelist. Why? He just shared his story. Listen, you don't need to be on church staff. You don't need to have a Bible degree. You don't need to even have a position in the church. You simply need to be willing and submitted to the Holy Spirit and being used by God. Philip simply proclaimed Christ and that's something any and all of us can do. I want you to notice, he went 40 miles north of Jerusalem to a place called Samaria. These Samaritan people were despised by the Jews because they considered them to be half-breeds. Now this was related to the Assyrian exile about 700 years before this and some of the, the Jewish population that had been that had been captured um, and and later released, these people were were intermarrying with the Gentile population. They were seen as synchronizing their religion with pagan culture. In fact, you remember in Luke 9, where the disciples are talking to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus... Give us the okay. We want want to call down fire from heaven and get rid of these people. Who were those people? The Samaritans. By the way, don't you think the disciples missed the boat a little bit on that one? What's it say maybe of the church's propensity today of thinking we're on the right side of history by condemning another group? These were Samaritans. These were the the dirty people. And yet Philip didn't care. He went, people weren't too sinful for the gospel. They weren't so much of an outcast that he wouldn't relate to them. He reaches out to them. Philip preached a gospel free of nationalistic prejudice And we should never let our citizenship, our our political affiliation, our fear of other nationalities, our distrust of others who choose a lifestyle different from our own, to get in the way of our love and our proclamation of the gospel. Because nobody's beyond that. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, I know in our our Western materialistic society, and I mean materialistic in a philosophical sense, where it's just the material world, uh, this this verse doesn't belong in the Bible, right? I mean, that stuff just doesn't happen. Well, first of all, I take the Bible to be true, so I, I believe it did happen. Secondly, I've seen the demonic activity. Philip was speaking about people Uh, was speaking to people who were fixated on what he was saying. That's pretty cool. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. And what was this? It was because of the power of the gospel that had accompanied the message for Philip. Now, there were supernatural signs as well that gave credence to the message, says that demons were called out of people. Now remember, the Samaritans were steeped in a form of, of synchronistic paganism with Judaism. By the way, you know that there are, this is kind of a side note, two signs of false teaching or two elements that go along with false teaching, I should say. You know what they are that the Bible depicts? Immorality and demonic activity. Here's a testimony of Scripture. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were uh, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, Jude 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths to suit their own passions. And 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says, Now the Spirit expressly says in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons to the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Really, what what Philip is doing is addressing the root of the problem with the demonic activity, and he causes the demons to leave. And it should come as no surprise that in our world today, those who ignore sound doctrine and the authority of Scripture, they will find themselves siding with the cultural mores, the cultural ethics. It's indeed a, a disturbing state when you see, quote, Christian leaders eschewing skewing doctrine in favor of purely a, a pragmatic approach to embrace the culture or to grow a church but doctrine eh, could do without that that should throw up a red flag big time run it says that he was he also, Philip, healed the paralyzed and lame. Paralyzed means those who cannot move their legs. Lame means you walk with a limp. And such miracles, again, were being done so that people could see the truth of the gospel. People were transformed by the word of God, the truth of the gospel. So the people of Samaria who heard the gospel and believed were given physical healing, um, freedom from demonic activity, and most important, forgiveness of their sins. And what was the result? Check this out. So there was much joy in that city, verse 8. What do you think these Samaritans thought when they realized that the gospel is also for half-breeds? That there were no physical rejects in the gospel, that there was no place for human prejudice. There's acceptance for all who admit their sin and come to Christ, and therefore, all those folks can experience joy. It's so cool to see God building bridges through estranged people, uniting them as one through his grace. We need bridge builders today. We need the church to be a bridge builder. How about in Springfield? How about in our country? How about in other nations? We need men and women who will challenge prejudice and offer the love of God to all people. And then a city can find joy. How can a city find joy? Well, we want to certainly improve the education. We want to certainly decrease poverty but the human heart is only transformed through the gospel. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall exalt in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest and with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I ask each of you, what if each of us were to accept our task is bridge builders through the power of the gospel. What if our church were to continue to lead a racial reconciliation movement in Springfield that could, that could reverberate across the nation? And that's why authorities from Washington, D.C. Have, have come to Springfield because they've been wanting to know what is it that has caused this community to come together to address poverty and all the churches and the city to come together? They, they look with kind of amazement at what is going on. But see, it, it starts with, with each of us seeing the worth in our brothers and sisters of color and we cross that divide to love. What if our church led a movement, for instance, in Guatemala where we are partnered with, to end the abuse of women women in a rural culture where they are barely valued above cattle. Well, it starts with sexism being eliminated in our homes and in our churches and making sure women are given equal opportunity and spiritual standing with men as image bearers of their creator. You see, these are supernatural markers, no less fantastic Than a Christian Jew going to Samaria and bringing healing through the gospel. We go bringing healing as we convey the gospel, as we love well, as we impact our communities. And what happens as a result of that? Human flourishing. The community is helped, the world is helped. When we do our job, and such changes bring great joy, it's not the result of human ingenuity, but demonstrations of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to be a witness of that? That's all of our job. That's All of us. You maybe haven't seen yourself in that way. But that is our job. Let's pray.